So we will um, finish up Ephesians chapter number 1 tonight. Uh, we will uh, be in verse number 15. So we got through verse number uh, 14 last time. So we will pick up in verse 15 uh, tonight. So verse number 15 starts out with Paul saying, Wherefore? He says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So wherefore is kind of like therefore. So anytime you see those two words, what the writer is doing is summing up or referring back to what was just previously said. So we have to look back to fully understand what the Apostle Paul is saying here. In verse number 15, we have to look back at what the subject matter was. And so we need to go back to a brief review of last time. So in verse 12 down through verse number 14, Paul was talking about the plan of salvation. He said in verse 12 that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, who after you trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And we talked about how that, that sealing uh, is permanent, that the Holy Spirit of God moved in and it's not moving out that we were sealed until the day of redemption. And then verse 14, which is, our, which is the earnest of our inheritance, and we talked about how that, that earnest was like earnest money paid on a contract to buy a house. It was a guarantee that the contract would be fulfilled. So the, whole, the sealing of the Holy Spirit of God in our hearts and in our souls is the earnest, the down payment, the guarantee that the contract would be uh, followed through God's contract, God's promise. And he said, until the redemption of the purchased possession. So we're the purchased possession and God's going to come back. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to step out on the clouds one day and redeem us back to himself in the rapture. He's going to call us out. And that's what Paul is referring to here. He's talking about the plan of salvation, people becoming uh, a Christian and uh, coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God moving in and sealing us until the Lord calls us home. Then we understand that's the subject matter. So he says, wherefore, or because of this, because we've been saved, because we've been sealed, and because we've received the Holy Spirit as the earnest, as the down payment, and one day we're guaranteed that we're going to go home to be with the Lord. He said, wherefore, because of this, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love of the saints, uh, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So because they heard the gospel, because they believed in Christ, because they were sealed, he says, I cease not to give thanks to God. So he, he's thankful. So that's what we should be as well. When we, we, Listen, we should be thankful that we're saved, but just as thankful as I am that I'm saved, I'm thankful you're saved. I'm thankful you're going to heaven. I don't, I, I'm 
people are going to hell, I'm thankful that people, when they get saved, that's a, that's a joyous occasion. And Paul says that he ceases not to pray for them. He prays for them regularly. So now let's look and see uh, what Paul prays for. So then we get into verse number 17, and Paul said, this is what he prays. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. So what's Paul praying for on their behalf? He's praying that they have the wisdom and the knowledge of God. That it would be revealed to them. And that's, that's what we pray for uh, for ourselves. That's what I pray for. I want to have wisdom. I want to have knowledge. Now there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is information that we have. Wisdom is knowing how to uh, appropriately apply that knowledge. So I can have the knowledge that lost people are going to hell. And I can have the knowledge that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save them. But I can go about uh, giving that information to people in the wrong way. I can be mean about it. And I, can, and I can be rude to people. And I can push people away from Christ rather than drawing them to Christ. So we have to have wisdom in how we present the gospel to people. And so that's what Paul was praying for, that they would have knowledge and understanding of the things of God and that also that he would bring them wisdom. Wisdom and the knowledge. So when, when you think about this, if you run out of things to pray for, you just pray for other Christians that we'd have wisdom and we'd have the knowledge of God. When you can't think of nothing else to pray for, you can pray for everybody you know. You can pray for your family. You can pray for the pastor, the deacons, the church, the Sunday school teachers, the youth. Anybody that you can think of, you can pray that God would give them wisdom and knowledge in the things of God. Now, why? We get into verse number 18, and Paul tells us why he's praying for that. Why does God want people... Uh, Christians uh, to have the spirit of wisdom and the revelation of knowledge. Notice the revelation. Uh, that's important because the Holy Spirit of God will reveal to us what the Scripture is saying. Uh, I always thought it was uh, interesting that so many people uh, have different versions of the Bible. You can get all different kind of versions of the Bible. You can get children's Bibles and cartoon Bibles and, and uh, in all these other things. And, and people are constantly on this mission to make the Bible to where anyone can understand it. And I've got news for you. You can't, you, you can change the words, but you will not be able to ever take the Word of God and make it to where it's like reading a newspaper article so that everybody that reads it understands it because it's a spiritual book and it's written on a, to spiritual people and you have to understand it on a spiritual plane. Now, I'm not saying that people aren't saved, can't understand it because I've known some people that are very knowledgeable about the Word of God. But if they truly understood the Word of God, they would accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. I, I remember a neighbor of mine, 
he could quote you just about any scripture. He could explain just about any scripture. He could tell you about the children of Israel and the things that they faced. And he could quote scripture more than anybody I ever saw. Then he would turn around and tell you, but I'm lost and I'm going to hell. If he really understood what he was reading, he would fall on his face before Almighty God and beg for forgiveness and accept the, the, the forgiveness of sins and become saved. So just because he knew the words didn't mean he understood it on a spiritual level because it's a spiritual book. So it's never going to be like reading the newspaper. Uh, so really it's kind of like a, um, a false narrative, so to speak, uh, in the attempt to uh, change the words of Scripture and make it easier to understand. Uh, not here to, to bash different versions of the Bible, just saying that it's a spiritual book and we have to, things in it have to be revealed to us by the Holy Spirit of God, even to lost people. Lost people, the, 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 the grace of God and the mercy of God and the plan of salvation has to be revealed to them by the Spirit of God and He has to call them uh, before they can come to know Him as Savior. So then, in verse number 18... Paul says, uh, so what's he praying for? Why is he praying for revelation of knowledge and praying for wisdom? That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And then he goes on in verse 19 and says, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. So what is it that Paul is praying for? He was praying that they would have wisdom and revelation of knowledge of God. And then he says in verse 18 and 19, he's explaining why. So he says that... Uh, what kind of knowledge is he hoping that they would receive? Well, that their understanding be enlightened. That they may know what is the hope of his calling. So as Christians, we need to know what the hope of his calling is. And what's that hope? That hope is that we're, not, that we're just here temporary on this side. That heaven is our eternal home. That we're, we're strangers and pilgrims here on this earth. That uh, how long does a person live, right? 60, 70, 80, maybe 90. How long once we die through eternity, billions and billions and billions of years, never ending. So we're not in this thing for today. We're not in this thing for tomorrow. I'm in this thing. And the reason why I am a Christian is not because necessarily that uh, I'll have more wealth or fame or fortune by being a Christian today whether I never get wealth or fame or fortune is irrelevant. I'm a child of God because of what happens when I close my eyes in death. And I would rather have an eternity 
with the riches of God than have the millions of dollars that some people possess here. They may have an easier life. They may not worry about how to pay bills like you and I do or where's the money going to come from. And at the end of the month, there's people that never have to look at it and say, man, I barely had enough to pay everything this month. They have money on top of money, more money than they know what to do with. They give hundreds of thousands of it away to charity, and that's a good thing. But you see, that's not what life's about. Life's about what happens when we leave this body. So he's saying that he wants us to, to know what is the hope of our calling. If in this life only we had hope in Christ Jesus, we'd be of all men most miserable. It'd be miserable if all we had, if all Jesus did was got me through today and got me through tomorrow and that was it. Well, I, maybe my life would be better, but I'd still be miserable. But it's all about what he's done for us for all eternity. So then... Not only does he want us to know that he prays that we would, uh, the word of God would be revealed to us, that our uh, understanding would be enlightened, that we may know what is the hope of his calling. Not only that, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Listen, Paul says, don't, don't look at life and don't think about what's going on around you. Don't look at your circumstances. Don't look at where you are. Look at what God has done and what you're going to have and the riches. Notice he said the, ri the riches of the glory of his inheritance. It's what we are inheriting. We're going we're gonna to go to a place to where the, road, the, the, the roads are paved with gold. Gates of pearl, walls of jasper. I said one time that the, there's going to be gravel roads in heaven for us country boys and country girls, and we like gravel roads. The gravel roads in heaven are going to be graveled with diamonds <laughs> and jewels. So you're going to have paved roads of gold and gravel roads of diamonds and rubies. Now, that's not in the Bible. I made that up. So, but anyway, that's, we're going to be walking on things that people treasure here. But that's the riches of the glory of our inheritance. And, you know, it's even more than that. It's not about the jewels. The, the greatest thing about heaven is that we're the bride of Christ. He said that when we see him, we'll be like him. We will rule and reign with him. So we're not going to be servants in heaven. <laughs> the angels are what you would think of as servants in heaven. We're going to be uh, joint heirs with Christ. I don't understand that. I don't understand how when I get to heaven, I'm going to be equal to Jesus. But that's what he said, that I'm joint heirs with Christ. I have the same inheritance that Jesus Christ has as the Son of God because we are the bride of Christ and we will be uh, joined in heaven. And that's the glory of our inheritance. That's the riches of our glory. And then, what does he say in verse 19? And... What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? Do we not forget that all the time? Do we not forget the greatness of his power toward us? We do that, don't we? Something happens in our life, we get sick, or something else happens to a, a, a friend of ours or a family member, and we get all tore up and we get worried. And should we be worried? Absolutely. Should we pray? Absolutely. But we have to remember the, the exceeding greatness of His power. Not just remember His power, 
Paul said, don't just remember his power uh, to those who believe. He said, remember the exceeding greatness of his power. Listen, there's nothing that God can't do. There's, nothing, there's no problem that God can't solve. God's never been surprised by anything. He's never wringed his hands in worry, saying, what am I going to do? Terry made a mess down there. He's messed up his life. How am I going to fix it? God's never asked that question. You know, the problem is, most of the time when we have problems, now sometimes the devil fights and tempts us and tries us. But I would tell you from experience, my experience, and your life is probably the same, most of the problems that I've had in life have been caused by me, not by the devil and not by God. See, this is the thing. When, when, when good things happen, we accept that. When bad things happen, we point the finger at God. God, why'd you do this to me? Why'd you let this happen? Everything bad happens is God's fault. But when good things happen... Somehow we don't give God the praise for that. We only give him the blame when things don't go our way. I remember I was counseling with this one gentleman one time, and he was telling me, he said, I don't understand. He said, uh, I, he said I've quit going to church, and I've, got, and, and I've got no use for God. And I said, well, why is that? He said, I had the perfect life. That's what he told me. I had the perfect life. I had a good job was making good money, I had a beautiful wife, had a beautiful home, had two beautiful kids. He said, I had the perfect life. He said, I had no worry, no stress. He said, everything was perfect. He said, now I'm divorced. He said, I lost my job and I lost my home. He said, my kids won't talk to me. He said, I don't understand why God's doing this to me. He said, I don't understand what God has against me. And I just looked at him and I said, well, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, when you had the perfect life, when God had blessed you with all that stuff and everything was great and you had a good job and had a lot of money and you had a great home and you had a nice wife, a beautiful family, I said, did you ever go around telling people about how, much, how great God was and how much he blessed you? I said, did you ever praise him for, for all the things you had? Did you ever thank him for all the things you had at any time? And he just sat there and stared at me. I said, were you even faithful to church? Or did you go to church? Were you faithful to, to go worship God? And he dropped his head. And he said, well, I'll have to say no. I said, well, then you explain to me why God should continue to bless you. I said, help me understand that. Help me understand how that God gave you the perfect life and you not once said thank you. But then when it's all gone, all of a sudden, it's God's fault. I said, what obligation does he have to continue to bless somebody that doesn't even appreciate and tell him thank you for what he got. I said, would you do that with your kids? I said, if you were giving your kids nice things and kept giving them things and kept giving them things and they never said thank you, Dad, and they never said I appreciate it and they acted like it didn't matter, I said, would you continue to give them nice things? He said, no. I said, well, then why is God obligated to continue to bless somebody that doesn't even say thank you? And that's the way we get sometimes. But see... 
Paul said that we should that that we should remember that not only we should remember we should know he's praying that they would know the exceeding greatness of his power toward those who believe and God has great power I, I am convinced right now the job that I have sometimes can be a hassle I you know it's a job that's what I tell people it's job not fun you know if, if they stopped paying me, I wouldn't do anything for me. I'm just going to be honest with you. I do it for the money. Now, I enjoy what I do, but if they stopped paying me, I wouldn't do it for free, right? Because, I, you know, I have to have money to pay bills, but still, I wouldn't do it for free. It's a job. It's J-O-B. It's not F-U-N. Sometimes I have fun, but at the end of the day, it's a job. <clears throat> but what, what Paul is saying here is that we need to understand the greatness of the power that, that he has toward us. So this is what I am 100% convinced. I prayed for this job. I didn't pray. I'd never heard of this company before I applied. I, I didn't pray, God, give me a job at that company. I'd never even heard of the company. But I was praying for a job because the job I had was high stress and low pay. And I was praying for something else. And God brought this company in that I'd never heard of before, didn't know anything about. There was like 10 different people that applied for the job, and I got it. And I am 100% convinced that God brought that job. And I can tell you the story, and it would be obvious to you that it was the hand of God. I believe the job I have right now, I have because God made it possible. So every day that I go to work, I can praise God for this job because he's the one that made it possible. And he's the only reason that I work there. Now, they may think that I work there because they're great people, and they are great people, but I work there because God opened the door. The man that hired me, he didn't have a choice in the matter. He may not have realized it, but he didn't have a choice because God opened that door and God showed me that job and God impressed upon him that I was the best candidate for the job and he chose me and he may not have even realized why he was choosing me, but I believe as much as I'm sitting here that it was the hand of God and the power of God that did it. And that's what we fail to realize a lot of times is that the things we take for granted in life is his awesome power that is given toward us. And then he goes on to say in verse 19, according to the working of his mighty power. It is exceeding greatness in his power, and it is his mighty power. God can and God will. He'll do all things. So what was Paul praying that they would receive? That they would know the hope of his calling, the riches of his glory, of the glory of his inheritance, the exceeding greatness of his power, and the working of his mighty power. Because those things we as Christians cannot forget, and we not only need to know it, but we need to remember it and give him glory and honor and praise for it. Now, verse number 20 <clears throat> He goes on, and he's on the same subject here. He said, which he wrought in Christ. So God wrought this or brought this to pass in Christ Jesus when? So what is that exceeding greatness of his power toward us? What is his mighty power? What is the, the riches of the glory of his inheritance? 
to the saints, which he wrought or brought to pass in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. So he's telling us, how do we know this? It's because it came to pass when God raised Christ from the dead. So where is all that? Uh, where does the power of the hope and glory and the greatness and work and come from? It's in Christ because he was raised from the dead and he's seated at the right hand of God. And it says that in his own right hand in heavenly places. Hebrews 1 says, When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 10, 12, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God. So we know exactly where Jesus Christ is today. Jesus Christ is in heaven and he's sitting on the throne and he's sitting at the right hand of God. And we have to understand what that means. What that means at this time when, when Paul was writing this, the right hand was considered we even say it today, there's a phrase, he's my right-hand man. That means that that's where the authority and that's where the power is. God the Father depends on the Son. The Son has all authority and all power, and he's getting ready to tell us this. Verse 21, because Jesus Christ gave his life for you and I, because God raised him from the dead and is now setting on the right hand of God, verse 21, Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. So he's describing Jesus Christ. And what is Jesus? He's far above. He's not just above. He's not equal to. Paul said he's far above. What? All principality. He's far above all power. He's far above all might. He's far above all dominion. He's far above every name. Not only in this world, but in the world to come, which is the eternal heaven that John saw in Revelation where he said he saw a new Jerusalem, a new city coming down from a new heaven, set down on a new earth. All that is what he's talking about. So listen, Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Philippians chapter 2 says, And being found in fashion of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what God did. God the Father did this. When Jesus Christ laid his life down as a, as a payment for our sins, God the Father elevated the Son even above himself said that it gave him a name which is above every name. We don't know the name of God the Father. We don't know the name of the Holy Spirit. But we know the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, because God set him up above all things, even himself. He's above all principality, all power, all might, all dominion, above every name in this world and in the world to come. So 
Paul is saying, God the Father said the Son is now in charge. He's, he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Uh, even in Isaiah chapter 9, when he was talking about the coming of the baby Jesus, he said, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Ladies and gentlemen, there is none like Him. There is none above Him, and there's none equal to Him. Jesus Christ is the ruler of all things. He's the ruler of all things on this earth. He's the ruler of all things in the atmosphere, in, the, in, the, in, in all the uh, uh, stars and all the planets and all the galaxies. And he's the ruler in heaven. There is none other name above his name that has ever been spoken or ever will be spoken. People, people, the president may think that he's the boss. The, you know, uh, the, the, the president of uh, Germany, the president of Russia, they may think they're in charge. They pale in comparison to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus Christ sits on the throne at the right hand of God and he rules and he reigns over everything. Listen to what he said in verse number 22. He said, and... He has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. So what is above Jesus Christ? Nothing. He said he put all things under his feet. Not only is all things under his feet, but he's the head of the church. And in verse 23, he says, uh, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So this is what he's saying, that Jesus Christ is above all principality, above all power, all might, all dominion. His name is above every name. He sits on the right-hand throne of God, and he is, all things are under his feet, and he's the head of the church, that the church is his body. Okay, so you're gonna, you, if you get this, you're going to be excited. So Jesus Christ says in verse 22 that He's over all things to the church, which is his body. We're the body of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. That the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So what, what is he saying here? He's saying that he's the head of the church and the church is the body of Christ. And that body, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the church, you and I as Christians, as saved believers... We are the fullness, the completion of Him. We complete Him. He is incomplete without us. Why is He incomplete without us? Because He's not God without me? No, He's incomplete because He loves you and I so much that He's not complete without us. See, my wife completes me. It's not that I'm, I'm here and she's not. It's not that I can't survive without her. It's that I love her and I need her. I want to be with her. I don't live in the same house with her because the government forces me to. I don't live in that house because if I happen to leave, I'm going to get arrested and go to prison. I live in the house with her because I cherish her and because I love her. And I am not a complete person without her. That's exactly what Paul is saying here about Jesus Christ. As sorry as we are, he saved us anyway, and he com we complete him, and he completes us. Now, that ought to make you want to shout. 
We complete him. This, this, is, this is what Jesus, in a sense, is saying here through Paul. Jesus says, eternity in heaven would not be the same without you being there with me. It would be incomplete without you. You see, sometimes my wife goes on trips or she goes out with friends or something like that. She may go on a weekend with some girlfriends of hers or whatever, and I'm at the house by myself. And I'm going to be honest with you, for the first half a day or so, it's pretty nice. I can do what I want. I don't have to pick nothing up. I can set around. Nobody's there watching and nobody. But, you know, after about a half a day, I start missing her. I don't have anybody to talk to. I start thinking about what's she doing, where she's at. Who, is she having fun? I hope, she's, I hope she's safe. And I'm sitting at the house, but what can I think about? I can't, I can't enjoy being alone and being, quote, free because all I'm thinking about is her. Where is she? What's she doing? Is she okay? And then if she doesn't call me and doesn't check in, then I start getting worried. You reckon something happened? Maybe she had a wreck. Maybe there's an accident. Maybe she's in the hospital. So then I start texting her. Hey, are you okay? What do you do? And then if she doesn't text me back because maybe she's busy doing something, then I get real worried. Jesus Christ cares more about me and you than I do about my wife. And he says, I'm incomplete without you. And he thinks about us. And he can't enjoy heaven for his mind being on you and I. We make, we make him complete. And he makes all things complete. So Romans 12 verse 5 says, So we being many are one body in Christ and every one members one of another. In Ephesians 5 he said Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Colossians 1 says, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Jesus Christ, you know what he's doing right now? His mind is on us right now. And you know what he's looking forward to? You say, you say, you think Jesus Christ is looking forward to something? You better believe he is. He's looking forward to the day. See, he doesn't know. Jesus said that uh, God the Father is the only one that knows the end of time. So one day, the Father is going to look to the Son, and he's going to say, Son, go get your bride. And Jesus Christ is going to step out, and he's looking forward to that day. That's where his mind is. His mind is on you and I, and every day he looks at the Father and says, Is this it? Is this the day? Is this the day I get to go get my bride? What, what were you thinking about? When you were engaged and your wedding was cut, what were you thinking about? Were you thinking about retirement? No, you were thinking about that wedding day. You were thinking about the day when... If you're a man, you were thinking about the day that you stood at the front of the church and you got to hear the wedding march and you got to turn around and see your beautiful bride come down the aisle. And what is the bride thinking about? The bride's thinking about when her father is walking her down the aisle and she looks up and sees her groom standing up there waiting for her. Everything is about the wedding. Once the wedding happens, we'll worry about the rest of life after that. But until the wedding happens, it's all about the wedding. And if you're a man and you don't think it's all about the wedding, you're wrong. Because if it's not all about the wedding to you, it's definitely all about the wedding to, to her. 
But that's what Jesus Christ is looking forward to. Now, we're going to have the rest of eternity in heaven with him. But right now, he's looking for the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's looking for that time when he gets to take his bride home to be with the Father. All right, so that wraps up Ephesians chapter number 1, and we will start next time in chapter number 2.